Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. We are going to be in uh, mostly in Acts chapter 16, but we're going to start in Acts 15 and verse 36, which is uh, where we left off last time and uh, continuing on there today. So uh, as you are turning to Acts chapter 15, I'm going to uh, go ahead and pray for us. Father, we quiet our hearts before you this morning, and uh, we confess that there are things that might compete in our minds and in our hearts with you that would draw our affections, that would draw our thoughts and uh, maybe our interests and maybe our obedience away from you. We ask, Father, that you would help us this morning by your spirit working in our hearts that we might be attentive, that we might... Set those things aside. Some of them are important and we'll come back to them later. Some of them just need to be set aside for good. We ask for your help in doing that. Father, we come to your word this morning and we study it together, not just because we're interested in an old book, but because we are your children. And you have communicated to us true things about yourself and about us and about eternal life in your word. And you've commanded us to do this. And so we will, in obedience to you, seeking what you have for us today. So, Father, help us work in this time, we pray. We pray that you would be lifted up. Your name would be proclaimed. We would see you for who you are, and we would recognize that you are our creator, sustainer of all things, redeemer, high and lifted up and holy and eternal. And yet present here with us. We ask that you would help us this morning. Speak from your word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I ordered some books not long ago. And uh, any of you who have been in my office know that I do that from time to time. And uh, I also, from time to time, maybe a little bit more than that, will uh, check to see when it's going to be delivered, because I understand the more often you check, the sooner it's going to be delivered, right? And uh, by the way, you, you've heard that a watched pot never boils. Well, I'm sure that can't apply to books, right? But uh, so I watched that pot, and man, it boils slowly. By the way, just as an aside, when our family was in Turkey <clears throat> for about 10 weeks back in 2010, uh, we were there in Istanbul, and uh, we had a tiny little apartment, and so we all kind of sat around and watched the pot boil when we would make noodles or whatever, and it boils really fast at sea level. So in Turkey, a watched pot will boil just fine. But um, anyway, the, so I'm checking for these books, right? And I'm watching uh, for when they get here, and I want to make sure uh, that, that's gonna, that I'm going to be here when it does or whatever, when the books get here. And uh, they were being shipped from Michigan, Coming to Nevada, and so I'm no expert in uh, North American geography, but pretty sure the first step should not be to go to Pennsylvania. But that's what they did, and uh, I understand with the you know shipping hubs and all that kind of stuff, but it just does not make sense when you're waiting for something to arrive here that it would go the opposite direction first, right? And uh, it's kind of you wonder if it's uh, rerouted or if they got put on the wrong boat or the wrong uh, bus or the wrong whatever. And um, our story today is a little bit like that. It's kind of some rerouting that maybe is unexpected. 
And uh, to this point, in the expansion of the gospel in the book of Acts, we've seen that there's been sort of a logic. There's been sort of a reason behind. You can see why they made the choices that they did to take the steps that they went when Paul and Barnabas uh, joined up and went on their missions journey. Where was the first place they went? Well, they went to Cyprus. Well, I mean, it's not that far away, but the point is, that's where Barnabas was from. He knew the area. He knew people. He knew how to get around, so it makes sense that they would go back to his homeland, that they would go there and they would minister there. And uh, while they were there, they led this guy to Christ named Sergius Paulus, and he was an important figure there on Cyprus. And you'll, lo and behold, the next step that they take is to go to his home, Sergius Paulus's home. And so they go up to uh, Pisidian Antioch. And, and uh, if you were just looking at the map, you would think they took a wrong turn, but it makes sense. There's a logic to it. Because this guy was very important on Cyprus, and now he's a new Christian. And so uh, you're thinking, you know, if we take messages from him back to his homeland, to his people, where he's got connections, we could have an in with people. We could have an opportunity to talk. We would have, you know, respectability right away. Just because we're not a random people, we are friends of Sergius Paulus. And so they went that direction, and then while they were there, they traveled around to other cities. And so you see a sort of logic to what they've done. And uh, we're going to see in our passage today that uh, they, they kind of lose that logic, or it seems uh, to be the case. We're going to pick up our story here in Acts chapter 15, and continuing on, uh, this is after the, the council, the Jerusalem council, where they were talking about uh, circumcision and how that relates to salvation, and is it necessary for salvation, and what should be required of these Gentiles who are uh, who are becoming Christians and and joining in church together with other with Jews and whatnot. And so they write this letter, and and after that. At the conclusion of that section, we read this in verse 36 of chapter 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So they had had their first missionary journey, and then they had returned to Antioch. And now Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit those churches and see how they're doing. Let's go back to those same ones and visit them. And there arises a dispute between the two about whether to take John Mark or not. They had taken him on the first journey, and then partway through, he had abandoned ship. He had left them, and he had gone back home and left them on the journey alone. And so Paul thought it best not to take someone who had abandoned them before. And Barnabas thought, let's give him another try, perhaps. And, uh, and so there's this sharp dispute. And uh, a lot has been said, a lot has been written about that dispute. I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, talking about that. May, what I want to say, however, is that what was the result of it? The result was not one missionary team returning on the second journey. There were two missionary teams returning on the second journey. And so Barnabas took John Mark with him and went to Cyprus, which was where Barnabas hailed from. And uh, Paul took with him Silas, and they went to the other portion of the journey. So actually, in the end, the net result was that there were two missionary teams doing the work that, uh, that would have uh, taken one team conceivably much longer to do. And so I'm not saying that that dispute was uh, good, bad, or indifferent, but the result was the Lord used it. And by the way, this is the last we read of Barnabas in the book of Acts. 
And so the story has moved on. We've seen that it moved from Peter and the disciples uh, on to focusing on Paul. And now it's even more exclusively focusing on Paul with Barnabas being out of the picture as well. And so uh, they, those two different groups go their different directions. And if you're looking at the map in your back of your Bible, you can see that one team took Cyprus, the other team took the other churches that were up in southern Turkey. And so that's how they broke up the work there. Let's continue on in chapter 16 and verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. Those names are familiar because they visited those places before. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And so here we meet Timothy. We're not going to focus on Timothy a ton for now, but Timothy is going to become very important for the remainder of our book. And also, uh, First and Second Timothy are written to him by Paul. And so this, uh, we're introduced to this character whom uh, Tim, uh, Paul calls his true child in the faith. So this is a very important person in the advancement of the gospel, and he becomes a, a trusted uh, co-worker and then even, a, in a sense, an emissary kind of from Paul. And uh, so that's Timothy. But there's a weird situation that goes on here, especially coming right on the heels of this whole Jerusalem council, which was sparked by the question of obedience to the law and specifically circumcision. Do Gentiles have to undertake obedience to the law? Do they have to undertake circumcision in order to be saved? And that's the question. And of course, the Jerusalem council said, no, we reject that completely. That salvation is by grace through faith. However... In order for Jews and Gentiles to uh, to get along with each other, we have these basic guidelines for that, that Gentiles need to be aware of in relating to Jews and things that would be horrifically offensive for Jews, things that would close the door to the gospel for any future ministry from Gentiles to Jews, etc. And here you have Paul who runs into Timothy, whom he already knew from the previous trip, and wanted him to go with him. And Timothy was uncircumcised. And so Paul has him circumcised. Seems weird. Seems inconsistent, right? Well, there's a, there's a different issue going on here. Paul would in no way, he would fight you tooth and nail to deny that uh, I- anyone who said that salvation required someone to be circumcised. That's, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. That's not what, what Paul and Timothy are uh, addressing here. Timothy's mom was a Jew and his dad was a, was a Gentile, a Greek. And so in, in that time and under that circumstance, it would have been the mom's responsibility to have had that little Jewish boy, as he would have been considered, to have, to have had him circumcised. And so here he is, a Jewish guy who's uncircumcised. And so for the Jews in that region, and by the way, it says they knew about him. All of the, all of the uh, brothers in the area knew about Timothy. So he was well known in that region for one reason or another. And what one thing that they would have known is that he's Jewish But he's not circumcised. And so that would have been very strange. That would have closed the door for any ministry opportunities because he should have been as a Jew. And so in order to be able to speak to other Jews in the region who would have known about him, he would have had to have undergone circumcision first because why are you talking to me, Timothy, you you uncircumcised half-breed, right? And so Paul says, well, 
Our purpose is to minister the gospel to people. We want to share with people. We are trying to preach. We're trying to reach Jew and Gentile alike. And so, Timothy, your condition is going to be a hindrance. This is going to cause people to reject us outright before we say a word because of this. And so Paul takes him and he has him circumcised for the purpose of uh, giving them an opportunity to speak the gospel rather than shutting off opportunities. And so it seems very weird in chapter 15 that you have Paul fighting tooth and nail and uh, about you know, circumcision is unnecessary for salvation. And yet the very next chapter, the first thing he does is take a guy and circumcise him. But that's why he did it. It didn't have anything to do with salvation. It had to do with opening a door for the gospel, which I think is impressive because Timothy was willing as an adult to go through this for the sake of the gospel. This wasn't a health issue. He wasn't, life wasn't in danger. He wasn't, he underwent this procedure, which had obviously been very uncomfortable for an, for an adult to go through for the purpose of being able to share the gospel. And so you have this new team forming. You've got Paul and Silas and Timothy there. There may have been others in their group, but they are ready now to go and minister. And, and you can picture them. They're in southern Turkey and they're looking at the rest of the subcontinent there or the uh, Asia, <coughs> Asia Minor, they would have called it. And uh, we're going to see how they do this. But this is where the unexpected route comes in. This is where the, sh- the shipping you know, goes the wrong direction, you would think. We pick up our story here with the Macedonian call, starting in uh, chapter 16 and verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And they... When they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. I almost had trouble reading through that, because some of those words don't seem to go together. That uh, the Holy Spirit uh, forbade them to speak the word in Asia. Didn't forbid them to go sin in Asia. Or didn't forbid them to go do something uh, silly or uncalled for, forbade them to speak the word in Asia, and then didn't allow them even to go into Bithynia. So you've got God leading in a very strange way, in ways maybe we don't think about. And I, I can't describe for you what this would have been like. What does it look like uh, that the Holy Spirit forbade this and forbade that? I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if it was circumstantial. They tried to go there and they just never could catch a ride or, or the, the pass was snowed in. I have no idea. But uh, maybe it was just something that Paul wanted to do it and, and, and he just couldn't bring himself to do it. Or maybe they disagreed sharply. I don't have any idea how the Spirit led, but he forbade this and he forbade that. Don't preach there. Seems like a weird thing for the Holy Spirit to say. Don't even go there with the gospel. Seems like another very weird thing for the Holy Spirit to say. And so instead they go to Troas, right? And so you have a, an unusual leading of the Holy Spirit there and uh, seems unusual, seems strange to us. And, and it, it's kind of unique when you think about it. And I have no idea what it looked like, but I know the result. Look at verse nine. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So he was in this new location. He had traveled by this weird route, can't go there, can't speak there. And so he kind of works his way through Turkey over to the coast. And while they're there, they're down in Troas, Paul has this vision or dream. It's a vision in the night. 
And he sees this man standing there from Macedonia and says, come on over and help us. And so we have a plea for help. I love the way that's worded. It didn't say, come and preach the gospel to us, or come and give us God's word, or come tell us about Jesus, or anything like that. It's worded this way to convey a particular point. Come help us. When we think about unbelievers around us, we think about maybe family members, neighbors, friends, who don't know the Lord, and we're thinking, "Ah, I really want to share the gospel with that person. I I want to, maybe I'm scared to, or whatever, but but, you know, they'll probably just think it's an annoyance. You know, come and let, let me talk with you about your eternal soul. You know, that's uh, the way to break into a conversation that's sure to be a barn burner, right? So you're, you're kind of, you know, you're a little concerned, like they're going to be annoyed uh, or, or they won't have the time of day or you're going to make them mad by what you say or whatever. Possibly. All of those things may be options. I don't know. But the fact is, every unbeliever is a person in need of help. They're in a miserable situation. Whether they recognize it or whether they're willing to admit it, they're in a condition they're living without God. They're living on their own. They are, they are not living as they should. And so they are in a condition of need, even if they don't realize it themselves. And so I love this call. Come over and help us. It's a plea for help. And here we are. Talking about the gospel, holding the Bible, which teaches about the gospel. And we should be together. We should be gathered together as Christians and we should be talking about the gospel. We should be encouraging each other. We should be studying God's word, preaching God's word together. We're supposed to do this. God calls us to do this. And he also calls us to go out with the word to other people. This is a cry for help. And it didn't come from a, a person with a you know telephone or you know a Skype call or something. This was a this was a vision. This was a dream. God was explaining, describing to them the real condition, which is that the people around us need help, and the help that they need is the gospel. So let's take it to them. And so that's exactly how uh, Paul and company interpret this. Look at verse ten. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's how Paul interpreted it. That's how they all interpreted it. By the way, it says we and us. The author of our book here is probably with the group at this point. Luke is probably traveling with them. It seems like Luke is from Philippi, actually. And so he's traveling there with them. But they, they, they hear the call for help and they realize, well, the, the, the only real help I've got is the gospel. I can't take, you know, like what other help is going to be of ultimate use? besides the gospel. And so they determine God is calling us to go and evangelize in that region. And so that's what they do. And we see the rest of our story is kind of what goes on there in uh, in that region. So, verse 11, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrake and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And so there's an open door. They, 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 they sail immediately over. They hop on a ship and they go to this place whose name I just pronounced as if I knew what it was. I have no idea how to pronounce that. I just, I don't think it's all that important. But you're supposed to pronounce it boldly and as if you know what you're talking about when you read those things, right? Yes, that's how you do that. So... I did. 
Next time I'll pronounce it differently. <laughs> I have no idea. The point is they get there. They go right in. They go to Philippi, right? And they get to this city, which is a leading city. It's a Roman colony, which means there's going to be a lot of Roman influence. And we're going to see later in our story the fact of being Roman is going to be important there. Um, but this is an important city. But it's interesting. There, there must not have been a great Jewish influence because rather than going to the synagogue, which is Paul's norm, he shows up in town, goes to the synagogue to proclaim to the to the Jews. What he did was he went outside of town, outside of the walls. And in this time and during a Roman uh, in, during the Roman era, if if a religion was not accepted or well established in a particular area, it, it could go on outside the walls, but it couldn't happen inside town. And so he goes outside where he figured there's probably a place of prayer. Some Jews gathered together to worship and, and whatnot in that area. And so while he's there, he goes out there and uh, they find uh, some people out there. We suppose there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So the group of women out there, he goes out and in Jewish style, sitting down, Paul's the Jewish authority. He's a rabbi. He sits down and begins to teach them. Well, Good news that he teaches them. So he has an open door there, and he finds uh, in Lydia an open heart. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So they found an open door when they found a group of people praying together, and when they preached, they found an open heart in Lydia. The Lord worked in her to open her heart to understand the message of the gospel. And she was saved. And this woman was, uh, she was a Gentile, but she was a God-fearer, which means she worshipped the God of the Bible. She worshipped Yahweh. And so she, she was a God-fearer and she was a seller of purple, which means she would have been wealthy. She would have been influential. She had a lot of contacts with royalty because purple is the royal color and all of those things. So she would have been well-established. And she hears this message as she's down there to pray and she responds. The Lord opens her heart and she pays attention, the point being she believes in the gospel. And so we see that there in verse 14. We continue on in 15. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I'm going to talk in a little bit about the baptism fact, but I want to note here that she was baptized right away. That's normal, right? And we're going to talk about that uh, just a little bit more at the end of our message. But what I want us to notice here is that when the Lord opened her heart, she opened her home. She responded out of generosity and love for God's people. And so she opens up her home to uh, to them and invites them in and it takes a little uh, I don't know and she prevailed upon us she talked them into it and which was a good thing because they needed a place a home base to plant a church there in Philippi they couldn't do it in the synagogue because it doesn't seem like there was one or maybe they hadn't been received there I don't know they didn't have a place and so she opens her home and so here's the new church being planted out of her home in this place and so she opens it up she's very generous and she provides for them and and this happens right away it's, uh, it's interesting to me to see her response of generosity. And so when the Lord opens her heart, she opens her home. And so now Paul and company have a good footing to advance their evangelistic ministry, their church plant there in the city. And so there's Lydia, but we also have help for a jailer. So we move on in our story. We continue in verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, 
We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had been inflicted, uh, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so here you have a good deed and greed interacting together. There's this, there's this girl who has some sort of spirit and she's a fortune teller and she, she, she knows things she shouldn't be able to know, some sort of supernatural communication and we can see that it's demonic in origin but of course her owners are, uh, they've made a business out of this, right? And uh, you know, as, as anyone would, right? They're making profit off of what she's able to do and she's the fortune teller and they make the money and she's, she's following after the whole group and she keeps saying, these men are servants of the Most High God And they're telling you the way of salvation. And when you read through that at first glance, you kind of wonder, well, that's like free advertising. You know, why why didn't Paul just let that happen? Like, yeah, listen to her. You know, she knows what she's talking about. Come talk to us and we'll tell you. But it says he got annoyed. Well, it went on for many days. But, uh, But he got annoyed by it. This is too much, right? Well, when we look a little bit more closely at what she was saying, we see that it it seems true, but it's really actually misleading. First of all, she says they're, they're servants of the Most High God. Well, when you read the Bible, you think servant of the Most High God, that's the God of the Bible. Obviously. He's the Most High God. There's none like Him. He's the only one. He's the, he's the, he's the only, the highest God. But in the pagan world, remember there was a whole group of gods. There were many, many of them. And so a statement about the Most High God was just basically saying the strongest God, the top God, the one who's king of the hill right now. And so you might interpret that one way and you might interpret that one name because you're a worshiper of this God and you're a worshiper of that God, right? So it wasn't a, it wasn't a monotheistic statement about who God is. It was just a general, uh, they serve some powerful God, right? Well, this may, may explain why it took Paul a few days to really rebuke her and cast this spirit out because, yeah, we can, you know, we can have a conversation based on that. You could start a conversation based on that. But it was a little misleading. And the second part is a little misleading, too. Uh, I think all, maybe all of the English versions say that they're, they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. The Greek is a little bit less clear. The Greek talks more about a way of salvation, but that's not really the point. The point is, what does the word salvation mean? You and I think it means one thing because we're sitting in church and we've read the Bible. We understand we're talking about uh, spiritual deliverance. But in a pagan world, for people who had not read the Bible just people on the street in a pagan city, a Roman city of Philippi, salvation meant more like deliverance from hardship, provision, maybe health, maybe healing. That's salvation. 
So it's some sort of a physical thing, right? And so she's, you could see how you can start a conversation based on that. But she's going on and preaching this thing or yelling this day after day after day. And finally, Paul's had enough, so he casts her out. And, of course, that, that doesn't do good things because she has owners. And her owners, you know, want a paycheck this week also, just like they had last week. And so they get mad. They grab them, bring them before the magistrates, and they start yelling, you know, these people are Jews, and they're teaching us to do things we're not, you know, so we can't do. And so um, they have them beaten. And they end up uh, beaten with rods. They end up thrown in jail stripped, thrown in jail. And so there they are, clapped in irons, and uh, they've, got, um, they've got stocks on their feet. They're locked in jail. So, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, right? They cast this demon out of this girl, and they find themselves in jail. So we continue our story. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And you would be listening too, by the way, right? If everyone's miserable and everyone's locked in jail, and there are these two over there singing, <laughs> praying and singing, and you'd, you'd listen, you know, because they're, they're interesting. Plus, there's nothing else to listen to. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, continuing on in verse 26, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, and saw the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so here we have an earthquake and and it prompts a question. So the situation they're locked in jail, they're chained up, they're in stocks, they're, you know, I mean they're 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 praising the Lord during it, they're singing and and all of that, but they're in a bad situation and God sends an earthquake. An earthquake severe enough to rattle the walls to to open the doors and that all their bonds fell off. So I don't know if that means the chains tore out of the wall or or if they just unlocked, I don't have any idea, but the result was they were free to go. And so they could have just scampered away and all the prisoners could have gotten out. And when the jailer wakes up and he looks down and he sees the door open, that's exactly what he thought happened because who wouldn't just run away from jail if your jail cell was open? And so he's going to, he draws his sword and he's going to kill himself because under Roman law, as we've talked about before in the book of Acts, if, uh, if a jailer allowed prisoners to escape, then the fate that was supposed to be for the prisoners would now be on the jailer. And so he thinks, well, I'm a dead man. And so he draws a sword to kill himself. Paul stops him and he runs down, brings in lights, probably, you know, to make sure they weren't ghosts. I, I don't know, but brings in lights and falls down and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he's scared so badly. That he's in fear for his life. There's this earthquake and then the, they didn't run away. And then what's going on? He doesn't understand. And so he calls out, what must I do to be saved? Now, remember what was probably in his mind with the idea of salvation. He probably wasn't considering the you know, eternal state of his soul. He was thinking, I'm a dead man tomorrow when, uh, when uh, this comes to light, when people hear about this and they, they hear that the only reason I didn't lose the prisoners is because they didn't run off. I'm in big trouble. So sirs, what must I do to be saved? Maybe. Or maybe he had been listening to what they had been singing. And they had been singing about sin and, and salvation from sin and singing about eternal life. I, I don't know. It doesn't really say, but, but it doesn't really matter. He asked the question, 
in that moment, he was so afraid, he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so, of course, they're going to respond with a very simple answer. We continue on looking at verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So whatever was behind his question, Paul took the opportunity to answer the question and point this man to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And even if there was still lingering confusion, he continued to speak the word to him to make clear, we're not just talking about you surviving tomorrow because the the jail uh, cell was opened up. We're talking about eternal salvation. We're talking about the state of your soul. We're talking about the sin that you live in and the, the, the judgment that you deserve from God because of the sin that you live in, because of, uh, of, of being who you are, because of being a sinner. And Jesus took that on himself. He died in your place. And so there's salvation in Christ and nowhere else. So he preaches to him and says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and you and your household. And so... We have the message of salvation being presented. We have the clear, very clear answer. However unclear the question may or may not have been, Paul took the opportunity and got right to the heart of the issue to explain to him exactly, exactly what was going on. And it's interesting that just like Lydia, when she believed and she opened up her home right away, what happens with this man when he believes? He washes them. He cleans them. He cleans their wounds. He brings them upstairs. He, he takes them to be with us. He feeds them. Right? He provides for him. Immediately he responds with generosity, caring for God's people. And so you see that happening both times here. So what are our takeaways from our passage? Just uh, I'll, I'll quickly note in passing that, that uh, 35 through the end of the chapter, what ends up happening is that when day comes, the magistrates say, ah, they send message saying, ah, let those guys go. Remember those guys we beat yesterday? We hadn't put them on trial. We just beat them and threw them in jail. Yeah, just go ahead and let them go nice and quiet, please. And Paul said, nope. They, uh, they beat us. By the way, we're Roman citizens. We're in a Roman colony. Aren't you supposed to honor Roman citizenship? We're Roman citizens. You didn't try us. You just beat us. We were uncondemned. And you threw us in jail. So, no. We're not just going to leave quietly. You can come down here and let us go yourselves. <laughs> I don't know exactly what Paul's game was. But he, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't letting them off easy. And so, of course, they come down there and they apologize, you know, because they had beaten Roman citizens. They, they could get in trouble for this. This was a bad deal. And, and so Paul calls them to account for it. And then they say, all right, now you, you know, please, please, they ask them to leave the city, right? Because now you can't order them. So they, they ask them to leave the city. And I love what Paul does. Uh, I'll, I'll pick it up in 39. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison. They're supposed to leave the city. Went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them. And then they departed. He took his time. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's Paul's attitude or, or exact, but he took every opportunity. So yeah, we'll, okay, we'll leave the city when we get, when we, you know, when we finish church, uh, then we'll, then we'll get around to it. So he stops and visits Lydia and he encourages the brothers, you know, and speaks to them for a while. And then, well, I guess we'll go. So that's, that's kind of how that story concludes and they move on to the next thing. 
So our takeaways. What do we, what do we take away from our passage? There's a lot in there, uh, that, that we could, that we could take away. And the baptism issue is a large one. Because you'll notice in both situations, they believed and they were baptized immediately. And not just they were baptized. Their whole family was baptized. The whole household. Right? Which would have not just meant children. It would have been the whole family, but probably servants too. And so what was going on here is that in those days, who determined the religion of the household? Well, the master. Right? The head of the household determined the religion of the household. And so, so here you have Lydia getting saved. She becomes a Christian and she says, well, we're a Christian household now. And so they all get baptized. And you have the same thing with the jailer. And so I could talk more about what the, that baptism meant and who all was involved. And probably they, they weren't really uh, believers. They didn't all get saved. That would be a great message. But it doesn't say that. It says the jailer was saved. It does say they were baptized. Right, and, and it talks about the uh, Lydia being saved. Well, the point for our conversation, we can we can develop baptism a little bit more. The point is, they were baptized right away. They believed and were baptized. And so, the challenge for us is that so often in our day and age, we don't see the point for baptism. We think, well, that's a work, isn't it? And, and no works are required for salvation. And since it's not required for salvation, I'm not going to do it. And that's not the point. The point is, we're identifying with Christ. We're identifying with him, and so when you identify with him in spirit, when you've become a Christian, it's time to get baptized. And so I would encourage us, I would challenge us in that regard, that uh, for those of you who believe in Christ and who have not been baptized, come talk to us. Come talk to, to Chris Ward or, or Pastor Woody or me about that. We would love to see you be baptized. And so uh, that's, that's the point of that right now. I will note in passing that um, we mentioned when we first started the book of Acts that just because something happens in the book of Acts does not mean that we are required or expected to do the same thing, that narrative is not necessarily normative. This is a narrative story of what happened and not necessarily normative for our situation. But I want to move on from the topic of baptism. I want to talk about Paul and Silas, secondly, in jail. They had been beaten with rods. I've never been beaten with rods. I've been spanked, you know, and I've you know, been beat up or whatever, but I've never been beaten with rods, stripped and beaten, and then thrown in jail with your feet in stocks, right? And they're sitting there, extremely uncomfortable. And they have joy in the Lord. They're singing. They're praying. They're, uh, they're rejoicing. They have... They have a joy even in the midst of the great difficulties that they're going through. And, and part of that is, is because Paul is the same one who would write this in Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And really what else is there? And so the situation was dark and grim. And the bruises hurt. And the blood was running freely, I'm sure. And their muscles were sore from being in the stocks. And they were praising God. And they were singing. And so that, that, that joy in the Lord that Paul and Silas had is powerful to me as I read through this passage to think that it's, it's, a, it's a testimony of, of who God really is and how valuable He really is. That even when, when things are made very difficult for us or valuable things in our lives are removed, He is still all valuable. And so that's what Paul and Silas thought. Thirdly, look at the lengths that God went through in this passage, in this passage alone, 
to bring the gospel to Lydia and to the Philippian jailer. I talked about the, you know, the weird shipping pattern that they took to get the gospel there and they tried to go here and couldn't go there. Why did God say you can't go there and you can't preach there? Right? Well, I, I don't know all of it. I just know the result. This weird journey that, uh, that brought them to this point. Uh, God had forbidden Paul to preach where he wanted to in order to take him to Troas. Don't go there. Don't preach there. Instead, go over here. And in Troas, God gave him a vision of the Macedonian to bring help to the people there. God gave that vision. And then once in Philippi, God was the one who opened Lydia's heart to the gospel. And then, the story's not over, he arranged for them to meet this woman, this girl, to cast the spirit out of her, which is a good thing to do, and they get arrested and beaten and thrown in jail for it. Why? Man, that's mean. Doesn't that seem mean that Paul and Silas, they were just serving the Lord, and here they are beat and bruised, and they're in jail? But it's really just a setup. It was a setup to get them into that jail for when that earthquake happened so that the Philippian jailer could hear the gospel and believe. And so you look at this route, and it seems like a you know lots of twists and lots of turns, but you see that what it does is brings them to these people who end up being saved, who end up being the heart of the, uh, the, the church plant there in Philippi. But it's not done. Remember what happened at the end? They're, they're let go. And they're, sent to, they're asked to leave the city. And leisurely, in a leisure, leisurely fashion, after they get done doing all the things they want to do, that's exactly what they do so that they can go on to the next place, the next mission field to preach the gospel in another place. And so God went through so much. He, he took his people through so much in order to bring the gospel to them. But fourthly, all of that is nothing, nothing compared to the lengths that Jesus Christ went through to bring salvation to us. Nothing compared to that. He left the glories of heaven to come to earth as one of us. Then he lived among us as a man. He endured his own temptation and he endured the sins of other people, even against him. Living amongst sinners for all of those years. Talk about a mission field. Talk about a place where you don't, you know, maybe you visit and you think, I don't really necessarily enjoy the smell here or the food or whatever. And Jesus left glory and he came to live among us. And where Paul and Silas were merely beaten with rods, as they were bringing the message of salvation to people, Jesus endured death on the cross and the wrath of God in order to bring salvation to us. And whereas Paul and Silas were merely released from jail after their ordeal, Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again, and taken back to be with the Father. The lengths God has gone through to bring salvation to us. And this is the gospel that calls you and me to believe just like Lydia and just like that jailer. And when we repent, when we believe in him, his obedience becomes our obedience, his death becomes our death, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection so that one day we too will finally and fully be in God's presence perfectly and forever, never to die again. And so this gospel that saved Lydia and this gospel that saved the jailer is the same gospel that we proclaim today. It's the same gospel we believe in today. And my desire is that we would believe that, that we would put our faith in Christ, that we would see that just like this Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? I have nothing to offer God. 
in myself. And yet Jesus paid it all. Jesus did all of that. And so I trust him. I look to his record. I look to what he has done. I believe in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. My desire also is that we would, that we would value God that much. That we would see what he has done for us. That we would see who he is and how he's made himself known to us to the degree that the hard things in life, sometimes they're minor annoyances and sometimes they're extremely heavy, hard, dark things in life. We'll lose a little bit of focus as we focus on him and the value of him. Like Paul and Silas singing because they knew just exactly how valuable God is and how valuable is this salvation that they have that cannot be taken away. So that's what I want us to go away with is a high vision of God and what he's done for us in Christ, a high vision of the value of that gospel, that that would be a governing, driving influence in our lives, that it would capture our minds and our imagination regardless of our circumstances. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this salvation that is so glorious, that, that frees me, like, like Paul and Silas, freed from those chains. Uh, I've, I've been freed, set free from uh, the judgment of my own sin, that I'm no longer bound to that. I'm no longer answerable for that. I'm no longer the one who has to pay that penalty. I don't have to endure uh, in sin and under, under the penalty of sin and sin having power over me. I don't have that anymore. Because of being in Christ, I have freedom from that. And I have a reconciled relationship with you that, that I stand before you holy and blameless because Christ is holy and blameless and I am in him. I thank you for that. And I pray, Father, that you would open the hearts of any in here who don't already know that, who don't already trust in you that way, that you would open their hearts, that they would pay attention to this truth, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would hear the way of salvation, that they would respond that they would believe in you. And I do pray for those of us who believe that we would see that this faith is not a portion of our lives. It's not something we've added to our existence or it's one corner of our room or anything like that. It is overarching and overriding. And we want to keep our eyes fixed on you for what you've done for us. We want to give you glory and give you praise and see you behind all of this, that we would glorify you for this salvation that we have in Christ. So, Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. Amen and amen. There will be a team up here to pray with you if you want to pray. Otherwise, God bless you and you are dismissed.